Yes, I mean, in fact, the, the Quran actually rejects that uh, substitutionary atonement. Not that it, it rejects that it ever happened, and it also rejects it as a even a possibility. One cannot die for the sins of another, the Quran says. Uh, unless we get that, we don't get Islam, especially Islam's take on, on Christianity. Five hundred years ago, Martin Luther would gather around the kitchen table with friends and theologians to talk about the Bible, theology, current events, and anything else. These discussions were called table talks. No matter what the question, the conversations always centered around Jesus and his promise of the forgiveness of sins. Table Talk Radio takes up the conversation, bringing the promise of the gospel to our lives. Stay tuned for Table Talk Radio. So, Ahmed, if you're a terrorist, I would suppose you have some sort of specialty. Yes, I am the suicide bummer. Ah, so you're finished. What? <laughs> you, you've done your job. No, I haven't. But you're, you're dead. No, I'm not. I feel fine. <laughs> but you're all bone. It's a flesh wound. That's Ahmed, the dead terrorist. Today we're talking about Islam. Welcome to Table Talk Radio. We have Dr. Francisco from Cordy Theological Seminary on the line. Before we get things in full swing, we need to do our Table Talk Radio buzzwords. Uh, this is where we uh, give buzzwords for each other, and Pastor Wolfler and I have to work the buzzwords in to the conversation sometime during the show. And I don't think we ever said that our theological buzzwords had to be necessarily theological words that we ascribe to. So... My theological buzzword for you, Pastor Wolfmiller, is consubstantiation, which uh, <laughs> is, is the belief that in the sacrament, um, it, the, the, the sacrament itself contains both uh, bread and wine and uh, Christ's body and blood, which sounds like the Lutheran position, but we don't ascribe to consubstantiation because within that definition, you could teach a 50-50 mixture, that it's 50% blood, 50% wine. And because of the confusion, we just say, no, 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 we believe in real presence. Well, there you go. And my theological bud word for you today, Evan, is an easy one. It is incarnation. Oh, I don't know if I can get that in. Whew, that'll be tough. Well, our guest for today, uh, talking about Islam, uh, received his uh, doctorate from the University of Oxford and is guest professor of historical theology uh, at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Dr. Adam Francisco. Thanks for joining us on Table Talk Radio. Good morning. I, I think the, the question you probably get asked all the time, I'm going to ask you first, is, is Islam a religion of peace? Uh, I do get that, asked that question all the time, and you can, I would say definitely not. Um, the way we define peace in their perspective, not that we're, I'm not uh, exactly sensitive to their perspective, but to really understand Islam, you've got to look at it from the inside. Um, and for them, Islam, Islam, the term itself means submission, in particular submission to Allah, who they conceive of as the creator. In submitting to Allah, in, in every aspect of your life, uh, you will achieve salam, which is, uh, you know, sort of it's like shalom, a, 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 whole, a well-being or a wholeness. So you could say it's kind of, they could say it's kind of a religion of peace, but it's, it's only peace that comes after submitting completely to Allah. And it's a peace that, uh, or it's defined very differently than the way we would define peace. 
Dr. Francisco, from everything I can tell, the Islam is just about the exact opposite of Christianity, but it, there's some historical roots. Would you mind uh, I'm just giving a brief uh, kind of historical introduction to Muhammad and to the, the theologies that were revolving around Mecca when he was uh, formulating uh, Islam? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, research being done on this very topic, because we do not... If you, Historians, when they look back at history and try to describe the past, they like, or the, the best-case scenario is when you have documents written at the time you're attempting to describe, written by eyewitnesses of particular people and you know, who record what people did and what they said. We have nothing like that when it comes to Muhammad. The earliest, uh, The earliest biography of Muhammad was written about 150 years, if not later, after he died. So what we have is very sketchy. Um, but if we're to accept, if we accept the traditional account that Muslims have passed down through the centuries, um, it says, they say that Muhammad was born in Mecca around 570 A.D., and he's born in a very, uh, you might say, a pluralistic milieu. There are a whole host of uh, polytheistic uh, beliefs in the Arabian Peninsula at the time. You know, they would worship anything from you know, spirits to rocks, uh, you name it, they worshipped it. Um, there are also, there is some scant evidence that there were Jewish people, Jewish tribes uh, in the Arabian Peninsula at the time, probably um, you know, sort of sects of, within Judaism, and there's some, even some evidence that there were Christians down in the Arabian Peninsula, but not uh, Orthodox or Classic Christians. There were more Nestorians and and some even uh, greater heresies down there. So um, he's, he is born in a pluralistic milieu, and there are some Muslim historians who say this is probably got him, what got him thinking about the nature of religion and you know who has the real God. Um, and you find in their story about 610 A.D., you know, after about 15 years of pondering this question, um, Muhammad begins to hear voices from a particular deity, which he, he'll call Allah, which simply means in Arabic, the God. Um, and from 610 to 632 AD, this, this Allah will reveal uh, various things through Muhammad using the medium of an angel, because Allah, according to the Islamic theology, is completely transcendent. Uh, he transcends uh, created space, and he, in fact, he's not even, he can't penetrate created space. Um, so what he has to do is send down his his word or his message using an angel. And an angel comes down to Muhammad. And the way uh, Sunni Muslims, at least, uh, conceive of it is that when Muhammad spoke under inspir uh, inspiration, it really wasn't, he didn't add anything to it. All he essentially did was open his mouth, and the angel Gabriel caused words to come out that were a direct... Um, a direct reflection of the words that uh, that Allah had given the angel to begin with. This is really, I mean, the, the fundamental uh, starting point of Christianity is the incarnation, uh, where God and man become one, but Islam just completely even rejects the possibility of such a thing from the very beginning, uh, from the very get-go, with the, with the complete transcendence of God, it's impossible for him to come down and, do, and be one with man. Right. Yeah, they would... You, there's a term for this, halul uh, um, uh, in, in Arabic, which means deifying something that's uh, created. They, they actually believe that we teach 
that Jesus became God, that he was you know, a, a human being at one point, and then, then he became God. Um, they, they really do not understand the Incarnation, um, which is one of the reasons why Christians need to be very straightforward with Muslims with what they believe, because any time you try to um, appease a Muslim or you know, you try to, to soft-pedal what Christianity teaches, it confuses Muslims even more. And so they don't even... It's, it's very hard for them to understand Christianity, especially if you look at the Quran. It mentions Christianity quite a bit, uh, several dozen times that Christianity or Jesus or, or some aspect of Christianity is mentioned. And for the most part, the image of Christianity in the Quran is completely wrong. It's a, at best, it describes maybe a Nestorian or an Arian type of Christianity, and when it does describe that, it uh, it praises Christianity. Um, when it uh, when it's when it comes off hard or opposed to Christianity, most Islamic scholars say it's it's when that it's referring to more of the Orthodox Christianity, you know, Chalcedon Christianity. Wow. Now, th- that's a very interesting point because, I mean, and I think we've talked about this on the show before, is that the Muslims have uh, a dogmatic confession of what Christianity is, and it's wrong. Right. So that they, so that they've, their confession, the Quran itself, locks them into misunderstanding the gospel or the truth of the scriptures. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a stunning difficulty. I mean, and I think you're right. You, we have to be so clear on this. That's one of the things we want to do, uh, I mean, is discuss, I mean, maybe perhaps as we're getting closer to it, what, what's the very kind of material principle of Islam, the central uh, governing theological point uh, which their theology centers around. And then I think once you give us that, Dr. Francisco, then we'll begin to be able to see the differences between uh, Islam and Christianity as well. But let's start with the material principle. With about a minute here, please. Okay, a minute, okay. <laughs> um, I think you, it, it, it's, there are two, really. One is this idea of submission to Allah. But I guess maybe even before that is the, what Muslims call tawhid, the confession that there is no God but Allah. And when they say there is no God, they mean there is no object of, of worship, no object worthy of trusting, except for Allah. And so, in light of that, they see you know, the created realm, all, of, God, all of, of, of creation, as completely dependent or contingent upon Allah. And so, therefore, for them, they would say it logically makes sense. If you just think about it, they would argue that... That, that uh, human beings turn and submit completely to the Creator. And that's the way they're selling Islam today. As a, They're selling it as sort of a natural religion that just sort of makes sense and is rational. We'll be uh, right back with more of uh, on Islam with Dr. Adam Francisco of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There will, by the way, uh, be a, a symposium on Islam in Aurora. Pastor Wolfman, why don't you tell us about that, that uh, symposium? Sure. On Saturday, May sixteenth, it's at the uh, it's at Peace with Christ Lutheran Church on Tower, uh, north of Hamden, south of uh, Iliff, uh, and it's a symposium on Islam. Uh, it'll start about eight thirty in the morning with registration. Go to three o'clock. Doctor Francisco will be there. We'll also have Deacon Nazami and uh, Doctor Stephen Hine uh, to talk about what is Islam and and what does it matter for me today. So th- again, that's May sixteenth. Uh, more information on our website if you're interested, or you could visit this website islamsymposium.blogspot.com. I will be right back with more Table Talk Radio right after this commercial break.
I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Table Talk Radio. We'll be right back just after this break from our sponsors. Hello, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'm planning a symposium on Islam to be held at Peace with Christ Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We have three speakers, Adam Francisco from the Fort Wayne Seminary, Dr. Stephen Hine from Colorado Springs, and Deacon Shaquille Nazami from Pakistan to be talking about the history, theology uh, of Islam and how we can reach out to our Islamic neighbors. The cost is $10, 20 max per family again Saturday, May 16th at Peace with Christ Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information, send me an email at pastor at hope-aurora.org. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, Evan Gagline, Pastor Wolfmuller, and we are joined by Dr. Adam Francisco uh, from Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Francisco is going to be one of the honored guests at this Islam Symposium, May the 16th, uh, here in Aurora, Colorado, at Peace with Christ. And information about that, if you missed it before the break, is at islamsymposium.blogspot.com. Dr. Francisco, you were telling us about the... um, about the material principle of Islam, you mentioned that there's two. There's this creed uh, and the idea of submission, but then uh, th- no God but Allah, that all creation is completely dependent upon God, uh, and so man, it's just the kind of reasonable, uh, natural response that man would submit to God. Now, I think uh, that does make sense, but if you're a Christian, you know that God has something better. In fact, I was talking to uh, Mohammed uh, Nuzi down the street uh, about this, and I said the difference between Islam and Christianity is that in uh, Islam, man is there, exists to serve God, while in Christianity, God actually comes to serve us. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, and give my life as a ransom for many. So, so this is really one of the most wonderful differences between Christianity and Islam. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way I usually put it is that uh, you have to do everything for God in Islam, and even then, you never can know you've done enough unless you die in the cause of Allah, that is jihad. Um, uh, in Christianity, it's completely opposite. God does everything for you. And, um, you know, it, I mean, the, it's amazing how different the religions are, but it's equally amazing how much uh, Christians and Muslims don't get how different the religions are. Yeah, that's uh, when I was having the same conversation. This gentleman always wanted to talk about the similarities between the two. Is this a con a common uh, tact of, say, Islamic apologists yeah. to want to emphasize the similarities between the two confessions? Or, well, there's um, yeah, there are a couple places in the Quran where it encourages Muslims. For example, Quran chapter three, around I think it starts around verse sixty-two or sixty-three. Um, there is a it's allegedly um, I think Allah is speaking through Muhammad, saying uh, the context is he's speaking to perhaps the Byzantines, the Christian Empire to the north of the Arabian Peninsula at the time, saying, "Let us come to a common word between us and you." And it talks about Abraham, uh, how this is sort of a common, at least a common name that we share. We both, you know, both religions believe in Abraham. But the Quran is very clear. If you keep reading that from you know, around verse 62 forward, that the only reason why a Muslim can call a Christian to this, this uh, dialogue of, common, you know, of their commonalities is it's, it's to use it as a, 
a technique for what Muslims call dawah, that is the call to Islam. So you can, in, in trying to emphasize some you know, at least nominal similarities, uh, Muslims you are instructed by the Quran to use that as a way to get Christians and Jews, um, and perhaps anybody else, to eventually come to acknowledge that the religion of Abraham actually was, uh, was Islam. And uh, so, but you know, Christians really don't recognize, don't don't get that for some reason. And so you have the, all these Christians engaged in Muslim-Christian dialogue who will fall for this trap of emphasizing our similarities, completely ignoring the fact that the Quran uh, uh, attempts to falsify Christianity. That is, when in Quran chapter four, verse one fifty-seven, where it denies that Jesus was crucified and even killed, it denies that Jesus rose from the dead three days later. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise, the faith is a scam. You know, that's my that's Francisco's interpretation of the Greek. Right, God, I know. Of the Greek. <laughs> it's but, a good one. I like um, that. Uh, and so it falsifies Christianity. You can find other passages. Quran chapter 5, verses 116 and 117. Um, has a the context is the the last day. Muslims do believe that there will be a, a an end to history where the dead, all the dead, will be raised, um, and all the dead will be judged on the basis of their good and bad deeds, um, and also that the the content of their faith or their their confession of faith. Um, but you get this picture of Jesus is going to come back, not the real Jesus, but the Islamic Jesus will come back. And um, Allah is going to point to a group of people who have been raised from the dead who are, who are the ones who, are, who call themselves Christians. And I presume there will be a small little group of them who are Missouri Synod Lutherans, too. Um, and Allah is going to say to uh, Jesus, did you te- tell these people that they should take you and your mother Mary as a divine figure or as an object of worship? And Jesus responds by, the, you know, the chronic Jesus responds by saying, I would have never taught them that because you didn't tell me to teach them that. Whoa! This is, so you this get is the Jesus. hadith, or is that in the Quran itself? No, that's right. That's right in the Quran, wow. chapter five, verses one sixteen and one seventeen. Wow! Or it wow. might be, you know, there are different, not different versions of the Quran, but different numbering systems. So it might be one fifteen and one sixteen, depending on what translation you have. Oh, well, speaking of the Quran, you know. I see. Uh, we we uh, we like to play some games on Table Talk Radio, and one of the games we play is uh, Bible Bee, where uh, we'll give each other passages of Scripture, and then we guess where the book they are, and then we speak about them. We so we've got a game for you, uh, Doctor Francisco, called Quran Bee, where I'll read a, a passage or two of the of the Quran, and then you uh, can guess what uh, chapter it's in, what uh, verse. You get extra points for that, and then you can uh, you can talk about it if that's okay. Yeah, you'll be reading it in Arabic. I yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. the only. <laughs> <laughs> so. This is going to be the Wolf Miller translation. <laughs> here's a, here's a passage here, uh, and it's, um, and the game is just a little thing, but we want to talk about the theology of it. It befitteth not the Majesty of Allah that He should take unto Himself a son. Glory be to Him. When He decreeth a thing, He says it only be, and it is. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um... There are a couple passages where it says that Allah does not take to himself a son. Uh, the one I know of, and I don't know the full content of the verses, in 23, I think it's verse 90 or 91. 
that right? Uh, I was actually looking in chapter 19, uh, verse 35. But okay. I don't know if there's okay. more than one place. I don't know that stuff. Oh, yeah, it's it's all over the... Not all over, but there are at least uh, half a dozen passages that say similar things. Um, oh, well, there you go. So I'll give you extra points. <laughs> For knowing the extra verses, but what does that mean? It's it it's unbefitting of the majesty of God to take to Himself a son. Yeah, um, well, there's there is this tension in the Quran. The Quran, in, for example, in that verse in chapter 19, suggests that it's it's impossible for Allah, the the Creator, to have a son because the Quran says in several places He did not have a female consort. That is, He you know He didn't have a wife. Um, so they, what you get though, if you if if you look at the the commentaries on the Quran through the centuries, the reason why most agree that that those sorts of verses are in there is because the the Muslims who put together the Quran, whoever that was, um, were they kind of thought that the Christians were teaching that Jesus was the offspring of of, you know, some union between God, or, you know, for them, Allah, and and some other lesser deity, sort of like the old Greek religions, how, you know, Zeus would have sons and Poseidon and all these others. But uh, um, for, but for them, the, uh, many will draw the inference that it's not just that it, Allah didn't have a relationship with some other deity, because there are no other deities, but uh, it's a, a theological impossibility for God to have a son, because God is totally transcendent. He's one in essence, and he's one in person. Uh, Quran chapter 112, verses 1 through 4, uh, Muslims will oftentimes say comprises about one-third of the the doctrine, or, or the, theological doctrine of the Quran, and it says, uh, Allah was not begotten, nor does he beget. And that's that's the heart of the Muslim confession of faith. There is only... Allah and nothing else to suggest that he has partners if you will or that there's perhaps a plurality within the you know the one divine essence um is to be uh, guilty of the sin of what they call shirk meaning associationism and they will say you know the the grossest example of shirk is you know hinduism you know hindu pantheism or polytheism um, but the, a subtle form of shirk is, you know, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, because they they th- they see the doctrine of the Trinity um, as a really a doctrine of tritheism. They don't they don't get the doctrine of the Trinity, and a lot of it, maybe not maybe not a lot of it, but some of that comes from Christians misrepresenting uh, what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Dr. Francisco, we're, uh, we just have about a minute left. Uh, just v- uh, very quickly, um, maybe some last thoughts um, on the difference of Islam and Christianity and the very danger of Islam, which is that by uh, by their theological position, they make the incarnation and the death of Jesus impossible. So there is no redemption. There's no blood of God spilled for our sins. If you could say a few words about that. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the, the Quran actually rejects that uh, substitutionary atonement. Not that it, it rejects that it ever happened, and it also rejects it as a even a possibility. One cannot die for the sins of another. The Quran says. Um, so what I mean, re- ultimately, what Islam does, uh, despite some you know verses that your average uh, liberal Muslim and even liberal Christian will quote to suggest that Christians and Muslims can theologically get along. Um, it absolutely discounts Christianity as a 
as at best a a religion that started off with uh, you know Islamic roots, but eventually was was you know as it fused with Greco-Roman philosophy, became a you know a false religion. Uh, unless we get that, we don't get Islam, especially Islam's take on on Christianity. And you find in the Quran probably the the most startling thing about uh, Islam is that when you look at the Quran, it teaches in the that uh, you know later revelations given to Muhammad trump earlier ones. And you find the latest rev- so-called revelation given to Muhammad is chapter 9. There's a little debate on this in, in, within Muslim context, but most are agreed it's the last one. And it tells you in chapter 9 that Muslims are instructed, uh, violence has been enjoined upon them, the Quran says. Fighting is enjoined upon you. Chapter 9, verse 29 says, when you uh, uh, approaching the people of the book, Jews and Christians, you're to fight them unless they're willing to submit, not necessarily to Islam as their personal belief, but an Islamic state or an Islamic political and legal system. And it goes on and explains that, uh, it gives reasons for why Christians and Jews should be attacked. And Christians in particular, it says, because they be- they claim that Jesus is the Son of Allah. Uh, then you keep going on, verse 933, it, it uh, says that Muslims are to to fight or, and to, to cause Islam to prevail over all other deen. And the Arabic term for deen is usually translated religion, but it really means ideology. It's more than just religion. Uh, so, I mean, there, this is the telos or the teleology of Islam. And because most people in the West, after Darwin, don't think teleologically anymore, you know, they don't see history as a straight path working its way towards an end, we really don't get Islam in the West, because they think in terms of teleology. They're looking forward to a time when Islam does prevail over all other things. Thank you, Dr. Francisco, for your time. It's been fantastic to have you as a guest, and we're looking forward to hosting you out here uh, for the Islam Symposium on May, May the 16th. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. Stay tuned for more Table Talk Radio right after this break. We're going to play Law and or Gospel to finish up with your listener emails and comments. Right back for more Table Talk Radio right after this. No online petition necessary. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Martin Luther says that the most common idol in all of the world is the idol of money, that we trust in it, that we fear losing it, that we think that because we have it, we're secure. Here at Table Talk Radio, we have the solution for this idolatry. Click the Donate Now button on our website, and you will support the ongoing efforts of Table Talk Radio to spread this word of God uh, throughout the world. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Coming up, that discussion with Dr. Francisco from Cordae Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, if you want that to, guy's great. <laughs> Can you believe that? Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. Um, I, I did a good job of sitting on my hands, didn't you think? <laughs> Were you taking notes? This, do you uh, have you had Dr. Francisco for class yet? By the way, not yet. I was actually scheduled for him this summer, but I ended up uh, going to be going on Vicarage sooner, so that's not going to work out. This is amazing stuff, this uh, the Islam, and it's 
and uh, the things that Dr. Francisco pointed out, how it's a natural religion. And natural, we, we know that, I mean, as far as the difference between law and gospel goes, that the law is revealed in nature, but the, the gospel comes only through the revelation of the scriptures. And, and always the, we also know that the devil's always fighting against the gospel. So you have this monster religion and world culture called Islam that says nothing, not a single word about the gospel. In fact, every word it says about the gospel is a rejection of it. Uh, and so it is a kind of a picture of the law in its purity when it's has no has no gospel. So that's right. So there you go. So if you were if we were to play law and or gospel with the Quran, every single answer would be law. We, that'd be so much easier. I get so many points. Do you want to do that sometime? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If you go to our website tabletalkradio.org and uh, on the home page, you'll find a, a link about the. Uh, the Symposium on Islam in Aurora, May 16th. So go check out our website, tabletalkradio.org, for that. Law we and also had gospel. a great little conversation with uh, Dr. Francisco in the break, and I think, Evan, you might try to edit that a little bit and get some of that on there. Dr. Francisco said, uh, sure, and we were talking about some of the attempts of the Church and Islam to uh, uh, to try to come to an agreement and how silly those are. So uh, check that for an extras or something else on the podcast, perhaps. Yep. Right, law and or gospel. I have uh, some some verses for you, and all of the, this edition of, of law and or gospel is brought, at least on my end, is brought to you by um, the words of our Lord on the cross. Oh, nice. Very good. Uh, and I, mine uh, for you are brought to you by uh, Jesus from his conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Perfect. All right. Well, I'll go first because I have four of them. Um, the first one is... Um, well, we could play a little Bible beat too. Do you want? You want to? Uh, want to do that? Sure. Okay. Sure. Sure. So the first one is at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is translated, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" So that uh, that cry, it's called the cry of dereliction, and uh, and it's Jesus. Um, <clears throat> People say Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, but maybe it's better to say that Psalm 22 is quoting Jesus on the cross. Uh, and it comes in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark. The difference between the two is I believe it's Mark has the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, while Matthew has the Hebrew, Eli, Eli. So that would be from Matthew. Is that right? No, this is from Mark. Oh, okay, so it's the other way. So um, Mark has Eli, Eli, and Matthew has Eloi, Eloi. Is um, that how it goes? Let's, well, <laughs> I might have screwed this up for you. I, I did I say Eli Eli? We need to run the tape. I, I have. You said Eli Eli. Oh well, I messed it up. Okay, you and I should have said Eloy Eloy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes it from Mark because Mark has the, Mark has a couple of times where he quotes the Aramaic from Jesus, and it's Mark's gospel that we know that Jesus spoke uh, Aramaic. Now, the law gospel question is very marvelous with this very verse. Uh, uh, Jesus here, he's being forsaken by God because he's he's bearing all the sins of the world. So he has become so hideous to the holiness of God that God forsakes him. He he. This is the suffering of hell in our place uh, that Jesus is going through. And the and the just almost unbelievable thing about this verse is that Jesus doesn't even know why. 
He doesn't even know why he's being forsaken by God. Did you see that? Why have you forsaken me? He, he, so he, there he is on the cross, and he knows this. He knows that he's never sinned. He's never done anything wrong. He knows that his whole life he's trusted in God. He knows that there have been sinners in the past that trusted in God, and God helped and delivered them. And then he knows that he's suffering the wrath of God, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't even have the comfort of knowing that, well, at least I'm winning the salvation of all the world. He doesn't even know that. Why have you forsaken me? This is the absolute horrendous depth of the suffering of Jesus. This word, by the way, is the fourth word on the cross, so it's right in the middle of the seven last words of Jesus. And so it stands right in the middle at the very deepest part of Jesus' agony uh, for us in his death. So that's uh, marvelous words. Now, uh, law or gospel? Well, for Jesus, he's bearing the wrath of God. So it is law. But for us, this is the most blessed gospel, that Jesus is being forsaken in our place so that God would never, would never leave or forsake us, ever. So we could, might say like this, Jesus prays Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can pray Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, so that God never leaves us or forsakes us. So that if Christ had not taken his sins upon uh to our sins upon himself, then we would then be saying uh, on, the, on the last day, my God, my God, why be forsaken? We're still left with our own sins, but that's not the case with Christ. He took them yeah, from us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and then, uh, and so the, the marvelous gospel here is that, that Christ's perfect life then is given to us as a gift. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. You got the beat of this passage. This is a beautiful text. Uh, it kind of blows the circuits. Uh, uh, a lot of traditional theologians have a lot of trouble with this because how could how could God forsake uh, God? How could the Father forsake the Son, etc., etc.? And it does. It it's uh, but the, it's the pure gospel here that, that's coming right through. Is that is that God takes upon Himself His own anger so that He doesn't have to spill it on us? Yeah, the God who previously said, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Right. <laughs> then all of a sudden we have Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can note about this text, too, that some of the other words of Jesus from the cross are addressed to the Father. Uh, so the beginning, Father, forgive them. And at the end, a Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But now it's not my Father, why have you forsaken me, but God. So that that Jesus is bearing uh, not just the wrath of the Father, but the the entire wrath of the holiness of God is being poured out upon him. So, I never noticed. There's that more before. about that, but perhaps we'll get to, perhaps we'll get to that in some of the other ones. We should stick with yours here. This is a good. This All is right. a good theme. Let's stay with the sure, seven words. Sure. Let's just make it so more. only you can. Let's make it so only you can make points. Why not? Sure. I mean, yeah, that's right. Sure. Yeah, I, I, like I guess that, we right? are kind of talking about the incarnation here. <laughs> <laughs> ding ding ding. <laughs> okay. All right. The, the next one then says. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Yes, uh, so the Bible becomes first. Now, uh, it just so happens that Matthew and Mark are the, the only words that they report from Jesus are the words we just talked about. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So uh, all the other six of the seven words have to come from either John or Luke. Uh, now this father forgive them. They don't don't know what they're doing. Um, mm, I don't know, but I I'm gonna guess John because of the second part where it says they cast lots for his clothing, uh, and then John notes in the crucifixion accounts that they uh, that they uh, didn't 
uh, tear up the sing- the cloth that was together, and this was a fulfillment of Scripture. So I think that's the Gospel of John, although I'm not 100% sure. You have chosen poorly. <laughs> oh, is it Luke? <laughs> it is Luke. <laughs> okay. So, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is a wonderful... Uh, a wonderful passage of gospel. It is the Jesus giving out the forgiveness of sins. And we see that even, I mean, it's we might say even on the cross, in the midst of his agony, he's doing this, uh, so that it comes kind of as a stark contrast. I mean, here Jesus is just being, he's being murdered unrighteously, I mean, for no good reason. And he, of all uh, people ever, could cry out injustice, but rather he's dispensing forgiveness and life. But it's perhaps it's not so much of a contrast because that's exactly why he's dying so that those who are killing him can be forgiven so this is a great theme uh, i mean it is the theme of the cross that jesus is dispensing forgiveness in his death and so that's a beautiful passage of gospel gospel it is okay so you're up to 600 points and uh we have time for maybe one more well i'll read the verse and then maybe we'll get your response right after this but the next one is, right. and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be, you shall be with me in paradise. So we're going to go to this break. Is that Ooh. law and or gospel and which gospel is it from? Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? We'll find out from Pastor Wilf Miller right after this break. Table Talk Radio, by the way, is listener supported. Uh, you can go to our website, tabletalkradio.org. Uh, and, and there's a donate button on our website. Uh, also, email us with your comments or questions, questions at tabletalkradio.org, um, and we like to get those onto the air. And if we have some time in this next segment, we'll get to some listener response. Don't go away. More Table Talk Radio right after this commercial break. This is Todd Wilkin, host of Issues Etc. When I can't sleep, I listen to Table Talk Radio. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. We're playing Law and Our Gospel. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Pastor Wolf Miller is hanging out with 600 points. And I have 200 points. I'm not even playing. <laughs> How did you get that? For your buzzword? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we're talking about the incarnation and, How many and Jesus and the person Jesus. Uh, All right. Yeah. How many uh, points did Dr. Francisco get? About a million. Yeah. Well, he got your uh, Quran B, but, you know... Just his amazing answers awards him. I don't know. Now, we're looking at law and or gospel with this question. Uh, Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Jesus speaks this to the two thieves or to the thief on his right. Uh, there's two thieves up uh, on either side of the Lord, um, and they both start out by mocking him. Hey, save yourself and uh, save us while you're at it, this sort of thing. Um they are joining in the mockery of the crowd. But then, as one of the thieves sees Jesus' righteous suffering, he realizes that while he is a criminal and deserves what he's getting, Jesus doesn't. And so he says that. We are, we're, 
we're getting our just desserts, but this guy, he, he didn't deserve this. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Amazing testimony of faith. In other words, I see that you're dying, but I know that you will live uh, and that you will have a kingdom. And so let me be a part of it. So then Jesus turns to him and says, uh, yes, uh, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is in, I believe, the Gospel of Luke again. Is that right? Uh, correct. Yes. So that's 200. Uh, and um, 200 more points. There you go. And it is a beautiful statement of uh, of gospel, <laughs> the, the promise of being with Jesus in paradise. Did you, did you have to think about that? Let's see. Pa- paradise, law, or gospel? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. <laughs> that was a dramatic pause, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> trying to make a decent show. You're sitting there laughing at me. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> now um, paradise. Maybe maybe this is a rabbit. Well, I know I, <laughs> this is a rabbit trail, but I'm going to go down it just for the fun of it. This is the verse that always comes up when we talk about the necessity of baptism. They say, "Hey, look, the, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and and Jesus gave him the promise of of salvation. Ergo, baptism isn't necessary. Ergo, nice work." <laughs> Uh, look, yeah, I remember uh, a classic answer was from the sainted Dr. Marquardt when I was there at the seminary, and he says, well, okay, okay, there's two ways to be saved. You can be baptized or you could die on the cross next to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but uh, look, I mean, the simple thing about it is that Jesus not, had not instituted the sacrament of the New Testament yet. Uh, he, it's after he, he's risen from the dead that he says, uh, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there was baptism going on uh, before this. Jesus' disciples, John and his disciples, were baptizing. Uh, so there's nothing to say that this thief wasn't baptized um, uh, already. So, there, I mean, you can't exclude that. But, but Jesus hadn't made baptism the mark of the, one of the marks of the New Testament until, until he rose from the dead. But the third thing, and and perhaps when people are arguing against the necessity of baptism, uh, they, they're they trying to sort out this law-gospel thing. Because when we say baptism is necessary for salvation, most people hear that, how, law or gospel? Uh, most people hear it, law. Right. Yeah, you, even, if you don't do this thing, then you can't be saved, and so they rebel against that. Well, if you, if you hear this, baptism is necessary for salvation as the law, then uh, that's fine. Uh, to rebel against it, but it's not intended to be that way. I mean, baptism is the Lord's gift of life and new birth and death and resurrection with Christ and the forgiveness of sins and regeneration and all of this. And so baptism is the Lord's gospel. So it's when it's, we say baptism is necessary, it's like saying uh, uh, the death of Jesus is necessary, or it's like saying uh, the name of Jesus is necessary. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. Now, if someone dies before they're able to be baptized, but they have faith in Christ, will they be condemned for that? Augustine is helpful here. He says, it's not the lack of baptism that damns you, it's the despising of it. So of course we understand that if someone has faith in Jesus and trusts in his mercy, uh, and then something happens to them before they can come to the gift of baptism, we don't say that they've, uh, that they're damned to hell. Of course not. That's crazy talk. Uh, but the but that God has for us and for our salvation this gift of baptism and that we avail ourselves to this gift is just part of what it means to be a Christian. Right. 
Okay, one more, and then we'll get some listener response if we have time. The last one is this. All right. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Another great word of gospel. Um, I think the sour wine stuff is in John. Way to go. Okay, so that's another two, 1,200 you come out with. All right, so to, gospel, it is finished. Why is this gospel? Uh, because, well, it's gospel because of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, what's finished? I mean, is his, if he's talking about how his suffering is finished or, or whatever, or the day is finished or, you know, the, the shift of the soldiers at the cross, their watch duty is finished, then it wouldn't be gospel. But what he's talking about is the winning of our salvation is finished. And, and the great thing about this is that, you know, every attempt for us to add something to, to the finished work of the cross, every attempt for us to try to have something to do with our salvation is undoing those words of Jesus. So those words stand there like a sentinel to, to keep any sort of human work, decision, will, act out of the action of salvation. It's all from Jesus and all from his death on the cross. So what is finished when Jesus says it's finished is his suffering and dying for you, Evan, and for all of you listeners and for me. That's what's finished. Your salvation is accomplished, and you can't undo it. If something's done, it's not like Jesus is halfway through saving us. If he was, then we could throw him off track and mess it up. But no, he finished it. The work is done. Uh, he... Uh, he's accomplished all that needs to be to be accomplished for you and me to live with with God forever. Marvelous. That is all right. Okay, so I I think we have time for one email. Uh, this one is uh, sent to us by uh, Joshua in uh, Darlington, Pennsylvania. He says, "I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America and I'm a five point Calvinist." Well, thanks, Joshua. Well, I don't know. There's like five five point Calvinists in the whole world, and all of them <laughs> listen to our show. I was going to say, email us. Thank you, Joshua. I mean, admitting you have a problem is the first step to recovery. He says, uh, <laughs> he says, I too am a seminarian, but I am among the evil Presbyterians. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> I was wondering if you could, uh, in more in, uh, if, if you could in more in depth discuss the differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism. We'll give you about two minutes of in-depth discussion. Um, the, the reason why I ask is because you talked about the dangers of double predestination and its impact on evangelism. I am studying to be a missionary, so I am very interested to see where the confessional Lutheran uh, would have to say on the subject. Um, I love the show, yeah. even though your dangers of t- double, double predestination comments. Um, keep up the good work <laughs> in defending substitutionary atonement. Thank you. Uh, Joshua seems like he's a good sport, too. I read that uh, that email. That was really nice. So uh, jo- I hope you don't mind uh, seminary and gig line <laughs> poking, poking fun there. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, where do we start with the uh, differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism? I, I, I think I, maybe, maybe the, the, the place to start would be um, universal atonement or limited atonement. I wanted to start at the Lord's Supper so okay, that I could go try there. to work my consubstantiation oh, wait 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 no okay i think we need to start with atonement <laughs> wherever you go okay. where you want well look hey i, I was at, i was wondering why in the world is there so much discussion about calvinism hanging around there i was thinking about that this morning you know what when most people think of the reformation you know what i think they think of they think of the personality of luther the history and the and the and the person of luther yes. but they think of the theology of calvin and arminian arminius 
Jacob Arminius. So that the, the, the kind of personality and the history is about Luther, but the theology is about Calvin and Arminian. And, and so that what gets neglected is maybe the history of Calvin, but the theology of Luther. I, I, so that's a, <clears throat> I think that's why uh, uh, Calvinism keeps coming into the conversation. But yeah, the biggest difference is, this, is, the, is the fact of the atonement, that, that the death of Jesus was for the forgiveness of every single sin, every single sinner, uh, that there, that the entire mass of sin of the whole world is atoned for and forgiven in the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or First John, uh, who, the, talking about Jesus who died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, so, so that the whole world business being covered with the blood of Jesus, this is the you know the kind of chief difference between Lutheranism and Calvinism. Now, if the Bible talks about the universal atonement, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Yeah, well, let's do an extended version again. So, um, well, I'll tell you what, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, visit our website, tabletalkradio.org, <laughs> and uh, you can listen to the rest of this on the podcast. So thanks for listening. For those of you listening on the radio, and uh, we'll see more of you uh, on tabletalkradio.org. Okay, continue, Pastor. Oof, <laughs> the drama. Boy, everyone's going to tune in for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell us more about the difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism. Only on Table Talk Radio. <laughs> uh, and, and come to the Islam Symposium, too. What, uh, uh, what were we even talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were yeah. talking about so the Calvinists have to ask this question. If if the Bible just kind of simply read, says that Jesus died for all, um, which it does, Christ died for all, but you your theology re, kind of reworks that word all to mean all the elect, you have to ask yourself this question. What is it about my theology that can't just have those words in their simplicity? In other words, what's what sort of idea is running the show such that um, I can't, with all my heart, confess the joy of what the Scripture says here, that Christ died for all. He, he, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what, what you find for the Calvinist is um, th- that there's this need to kind of settle the question, why some get saved and others don't. I mean, we know not everyone is saved in the end, so how could that be? And Calvinists find the difference between the saved and the unsaved in the will of God. So God decided he chose some to be saved and others not to be. Well, if, he, if in the very beginning, in God's will, he chose to save some and chose not to save others, then, then it does not make any sense for him to die for those whom he chose not to save. It would be almost insulting for those that he's not saving. And so then you get this idea of the limited atonement because you have this strong, strong... Uh, uh, doctrine of double predestination, and, and you have that to answer the question, why some and not others? Right. The Arminians, of course, are on the other side. They say, well, the reason why some and not others is because, well, Jesus died for all, but then you got to accept it. And that's... Right, and so it puts uh, the Both of these answers are uh, very unappealing uh, and, and not sustainable in the Scriptures, because the Bible refuses to really answer the question. Why are some saved? Well, that's the that's the foreknowledge and predestination of God. And why are some damned? Well, that's their own stinking fault. You know, that's just how it shakes right. out. It's two questions, not one. Right. Well, 
I was thinking about this yesterday as I was listening to a conversation on uh, justification um, on another radio program. Which oh, how mean. boring. we got to get past that doctrine. That's so old-fashioned. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you two questions. Um, are we saved by faith? Uh, well, if you want to say that, you can say it. I mean, look, the faith is, I mean, that could be misunderstood, of course, because what faith is, uh, is simply believing in the promise of the gospel. I mean, when the Bible talks about it, you could have faith like that the Rockies will win tonight or that the Nuggets will okay, go far as, in the as playoffs. As defined in the scriptures, are we saved by faith? Sure, I think that's fine. Okay, but, People say, but, but <laughs> go ahead. What, what? No, I mean, people say, no, no, we're only saved through faith, not by faith. Well, come on, the Bible talks both ways, and it's fine if you understand what it's talking about. I mean, it, what, all, all faith does is, is trust the promise. So it, can, it is completely and 100% dependent on the promise, which is the promise of forgiveness through Jesus' blood. And the promise is completely dependent on the cross. So it's the death of Jesus that saves us, and the Lord has just arranged it so that faith is 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 how that death gets to us. Right. Right. That's so the, what's the so that that was the point I was go, I was going for. Okay. Well, I mean there is this danger of fideism, right? That faith and faith that I I trust that I have faith. I believe and and I and now I'm I'm content because I believe. Uh, and this is a kind of a reflexive thing. I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer, so I must be saved. Well, faith is not that sort of thing. It's not really concerned about itself. It's concerned about about the promise. Here's the example. is that Faith would be like the baseball glove, and, uh, and the promise of the gospel is the ball. And, 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 and never do you hear when you're playing baseball your dad, who's coaching from the bleachers, say, keep your eye on the glove. <laughs> Don't take your eye off the glove. Watch the glove. You know, if you're there in the outfield and you're looking and and thinking about how beautiful your glove is and and all this stuff, then uh, then the ball is going to hit you in the forehead. <laughs> you know, you uh, the very thing about faith is that it's not concerned about itself. You even forget that it's there. the The main thing for faith is the ball. You got your eye on the ball. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the Author and Perfecter of our faith, so that. Um, so that we're not so concerned about do we have faith or not, but did Jesus die for me or not? Right, but I mean the I mean the the glove <clears throat> does catch the ball. I mean faith receives the the gifts that are given uh, to us by Christ, and so w- without a glove, you know, it would be pretty hard to catch the ball. Yep, impossible. In fact, mm. I mean God has right. in, so arranged it that the ball is to be caught by this particular glove. <laughs> and that's the only reason why it's important. I mean, God could have decided that we should catch the ball in a hat, or that we should catch it in a uh, with bare hands or whatever. Or, but He didn't. So He said, "It's faith is what trusts and believes the promises." So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we uh, we, we were able to to help uh, Joshua then, and I think that's all the time I hope we so, have. Joshua, for yeah, six- right back and. Uh, good luck with your studies there at the Presbyterian Seminary, and give him give him grief from us. Yeah, and uh, um, blessings to you on your your future work and missions. Hey, and congratulations to you, Seminarian Gagline, about to be Vicar Gagline. Yeah, um, a few months now from now. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, Table Talk Radio. Where the points are like the gospel in the Quran.
<laughs> nice. Oh, uh, they don't matter. Oh, do they don't matter. <laughs> it's not even there, really. That doesn't make <laughs> sense. All right, see you later. <laughs> You've been listening to Table Talk Radio. The views expressed on this show are that of the hosts and do not reflect the views or opinions of this station. We would like to answer your questions concerning theology, the scriptures, or anything else. Send your questions to questions at tabletalkradio.org or leave us a voicemail message, 866-851-5523. Be sure to check out our website, tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening and tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio.